There's the story that my mom used to tell me. She must have been about 38. She had already had my sister, but she desperately wanted one more child. The doctors had said that with her age, it might not happen. And so she went to the beach, straight over to the Pacific Ocean. She waded out into the water to have a talk with God. She held her arms out and she said, you will give this to me. And eventually, I did come along. I like to imagine my mom like this, in this posture, at the end of the earth, and with her arms wide open, willing the universe to comply, so full of vitality and strength the traits that got her through the darkest things that life threw at her. But that's not how she always was. And in the end, she faded away for years until the person who finally died in 2022 was only a faint echo of the woman she had once been. When you lose someone over a long period of time, it can be hard to remember who it was that you actually lost to begin with. And so you have to go searching for them. And that's what I did for months after my mom died until finally I found my way back to her. And that's what this chapter is all about. The long process of losing her and then getting her back. I'm Kat O'Shaughnessy Coffrin, and this is Lost and Found, my audio documentary about trying to unravel the complex relationships and heal the losses of my parents so I could find my truth and reclaim where I come from. This is Chapter 5, The Stone in My Pocket. So here's how it happened, her decline. It started in the late 90s, after their divorce, but before I left for college. Mom's feet started to betray her. She'd trip and fall, and her strength began to go. In 2001, she had a surgery to fuse her foot, but it didn't help much. And by the time I graduated from college in 2004, She used a walker full-time. In 2005, she got married to her partner, Tom, at sunset on a beach in Kauai. And she fell on her way into the reception dinner that night, suffering a terrible gash in her leg. 
Tom helped her to stay mobile as long as he could. But a few years later, she was officially in a wheelchair. But it wasn't until 2010 that she finally consulted a neurologist and learned that she had multiple sclerosis. Mom was 66 by then and far beyond the typical age for an MS diagnosis. There wasn't really much that we could do except witness her deterioration over time. In 2012, we learned she had an aneurysm in her heart that was growing. And by the next spring, it had dissected, it tore open, requiring emergency surgery that lasted 10 hours. As soon as I heard, I went straight to the airport and I flew to Tucson from New York, where I was traveling for work. Mom was still in the OR when I landed. The procedure lasted that long. I swear I remember her cardiac surgeon actually wiping his brow as he debriefed with us, admitting that he hadn't really expected her to survive the procedure. His name was Supermanian. We called him Superman. Mom spent the next week in the ICU, where they kept her in an induced coma until they could safely bring her back to consciousness without threatening her heart. I was there the whole time. And I remember when she finally woke up, she looked at me groggily and she said, Honey, you always come for such short visits. In the summer of 2013, she went back into the hospital with a blood infection that made her delirious. It was probably sustained during that heart surgery six months before. This was the first time she didn't recognize me as I sat by her bedside. And what that did to my heart, I will never forget. I also found out when I returned home from that trip that I was pregnant, expecting my first child. There were always these parallels. As I lost my parents, I grew my own family. It made these things feel confusing, conflated, the way these milestones so closely overlapped. The years that followed are a blur. There was a malignant mass on her leg, intestinal complications from diverticulitis. She had stage three colon cancer, which led to a high-risk surgery to remove the tumor and left her with an ostomy bag for the rest of her life. She had two broken hips and then two hip replacement surgeries. And through it all, a mental decline that was accelerated due to the combination of her MS, her heart concerns, and we suspect, undiagnosed dementia. She started to have these hallucinations, sometimes calling my sister in the middle of the night and demanding to come home when she already was. Some days she was with it, many days she was not. You never really knew what you might get if you called or visited, which reminded me eerily of my father at the peak of his alcoholism. Sometimes she said mean things. Sometimes she forgot what she had said. Sometimes she asked me to help her find a nursing home and figure out how to finance it, which I would do only to change her mind furiously the next week, claiming she had no idea 
what I was talking about. Twice, she stopped eating for several weeks. Once, she went into home hospice, from which she was eventually expelled, because she and Tom chose to change course and keep pursuing active treatment. You can't do this on hospice. It was hard on all of us. I always felt like Tom's efforts were keeping her alive artificially after her body had started to go. And Tom felt like I didn't appreciate the quality of life that she did still have. We would have these debates around her without her because she didn't really know what was going on. We were all trying to guess what she'd want and to love her in our own ways. This lasted for years. I couldn't comprehend how her body survived so much, so many times. I remember many nights when I'd call her out of a sense of daughterly duty. Not because there was any kind of real connection on those phone calls, but what else are you supposed to do? And I would just sit there with tears streaming down my face as she said nonsensical things that just made my heart break. Once, at a very low point, I referred to her as a zombie over breakfast to my husband, Nick. And later, I heard my youngest daughter proudly tell her friend that her grandmother was a zombie. Finally, though, in 2022, came her final decline. But by then, so much damage had been done. And even when she stopped eating and drinking and the doctors predicted she had days to weeks to live, my heart and my brain battled it out. I wasn't sure if this was really it because how many times had we thought she was dying before? Run around going crazy, setting everything aside to show up, to make arrangements only to have her surprise everyone and rally back. People will say, oh, that's great. Congratulations. I'm so glad your mom's doing better when these things happen. Like it's only a good thing. Because they don't know how shattered your heart has become from all of those false alarms. I wish there was a way to accurately describe the experience of loss that we had. The way that it can feel to see someone disappear ever so slowly. A gradual process that's marked by heartbreaking milestones. Like when you realize that they are no longer able to call or text or read or recognize you. To watch this mind that built a school in the 80s that once changed lives devolve into a childlike state. It was gruesome. It was maddening. She sometimes asked to die, and then she'd forget. She wanted to mother us, but she couldn't. And she didn't even realize that. Being around her was hard. Gloria Stoneham wrote in her 1983 essay about her mother, Ruth. I missed her, but perhaps no more in death than I did in life. I read this on the anniversary of my mom's passing this past spring. I finally felt understood. 
Gloria gave me the words I needed to explain something that had dominated an entire decade of my life. The anguish, the heartache, the resentment, the anger, with nowhere to go, the isolation that comes from losing a parent whose mind has gone while their body remains present, to have to figure out how to show love and honor that person, this alien who has since appeared and replaced your parent for years and years and years, it changes you. It breaks you. It consumes you completely for as long as it decides to carry on. The week that mom went into the hospital for the last time, I went skiing on a Tuesday. I hadn't slept the night before. I kept looking to see if someone in Seattle had called to tell me that she had died. On the slopes that day, I was coming around the corner and picking up speed with a tuck. I threw out my back. That had never happened. I remember screaming out in pain, ah, my back. And somehow I made it home. I canceled all of my meetings that day and I just lay there helpless on my bed for hours. I finally had to give in. It was so clear. Even in that moment, I could see how my body was processing the pain. My mind couldn't figure out how to understand. I didn't think that I was feeling anything because I was so locked out from emotion by that point. Our nervous systems start to shut down and protect us when they know that we can't comprehend. I debated then what to do. Should I go? Would I regret it if I stayed? The doctors kept saying, today is the day, and then we'd wake up, and she would wake up as clear as day and ask for a sip of water. This woman was incapable of giving up. My husband said, do what you need to do, of course. Go if you need to go, but I'm so afraid for you that you'll fly all the way out there and say goodbye again, only to have her rally back one more time. And I'm afraid you won't be able to handle that. But I told him, as long as she's in this cycle, I'm in the cycle with her. I really have no choice. And so I went to Seattle. Mom was in home hospice again. I had the chance to hug her and hold her hand. She was mostly gone, but nobody could say how long she might hang on. When she did speak, it was nonsensical. I remember us giggling because she kept asking me where her shoes had gone and then accusing me of selling them. Thank God for my sister. Laughing together in those moments is what always made them bearable. After a whole week there, I didn't want to go, but I knew that I had to leave. I couldn't control her timeline. And so I willed myself to tell her goodbye, officially, out loud, even though she was completely asleep. I held her hand. I told her that I had to go. And I said goodbye to her. And then she turned her head. She opened her eyes. She looked right at me and she said, you were a mother and you were a daughter. And I am so proud of you. 
It still took her another two weeks after that to die. I came home, but I was a wreck. I walked around with so much tension on my shoulders, furious at the universe. I didn't know how to carry on in my life while we were still stuck in this limbo. It was absolutely excruciating. And then, in the middle of the day, on April 7th, Tom called me to say that she had died. And I felt nothing. I think I was in shock. Not that she was finally gone or even by the relief of ending this terrible cycle, I was in shock by how bad it really got. How so many years of suffering could culminate in even more suffering in her agony. In those days of endless waiting and having to try and move forward somehow. To live our own lives each day just waiting and wondering if there would ever be an end to this process. It took so long. And the shock of that alone was the first thing I felt when she finally died. It took weeks and months and well over a year of distance before I could wade through what had happened to find a safe enough distance to begin to really grieve what I had lost, not in 2022, but all those years before it. I didn't understand this at first. It didn't make sense. How could this be? That is when I turned to my friend Sarah, the hospice chaplain from Maine. The prolonged prolonged dying or loss of quality of life or loss of identity over a long period of time. You're grieving every day, something new. You're, it's like a, they call, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's specifically like a thousand goodbyes because you're, you're losing different parts of someone on each step of the way. And that, and that is actually a different kind of hard um, to, to witness alongside that, the, the loneliness and the, there's sometimes like just a lack of light in people's eyes that they are there, but not there. And that to me, like, I would rather be at the bedside of a harsher, quicker death than to have somebody persist in that state for years and years and then even go into the dying process for months. I don't really know what else to say here, except it was really hard. Mom deserved better. For a long time, I indulged in that anger. For a while, I couldn't see beyond it. I felt pity for her and also for all of us. But it was in the process of this project and summoning the people who loved her throughout her life, inviting her friends to help me recall who she was and who she had been, that I slowly started to clear away the impact of all of those years and start to find my way back to her. 
Her friend Barb said something that really stayed with me as we were chatting about these later years. I do remember going to your house. I remember it being the kind of home that I think mom wished that she had. I think your mm. garden, inner gardening, mm. kind of thing that um, if mom had had a different life, she would have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. She made her life the way she wanted to. She she was, um, what do you call it? She was talented in that way. If she wasn't, if it wasn't going to happen, she was going to create it. <laughs> and she and she did. She managed to, you know. It's true. Just thinking about her standing there at the ocean, arms open to the universe, willing things into being. Barb also pointed out that maybe the one grace to how mom's life ended was that she didn't have to bear witness to it. Mom was so vacant, so checked out all of those final years that it was like the ultimate compartmentalization, I guess, for a woman who had survived her whole life by shedding away the bad things. We all had to carry the burden of watching her demise, but ultimately she didn't. And maybe that was a gift. In the end, no matter how you look at it, I didn't get enough of my mom. When I was young, she was scrambling to keep everything afloat. The business, our childhoods, our family. While dad fell apart. In my adolescence, she was mourning the end of her marriage, just surviving. She never taught me how to dress, how to put on makeup, how to feel good about myself. You know, mom things because I realize now she had absolutely no capacity to do that then, no energy to do anything except survive. And as I got older, we had a few good years together. In high school, mom cultivated my love of coffee shops, of writing, and what she called solitude days. Dinner and a movie all by yourself. And even in those years when she was gone so much of the time, down in Arizona or traveling for work, even then, I felt incredibly connected to her. She taught me how to find magic in the world, wherever we went. When I was in college, we met up on a few of her business trips where she was scouting schools as part of the college advising that she did for non-traditional college students. And later, in 2008, I brought her to China on one of mine. She stood in our hotel room while I got ready for a conference one morning, and she proudly said, you look beautiful, as I walked out the door. I remember thinking we should all have our mom standing in our hotel room when we walk out the door to a conference. And thanks to the generosity of a tourist couple there from Taipei, we even got her up onto the Great Wall of China via the gondola bottling wheelchair and all. She sat there at the very top, writing in her journal as I went and hiked a bit and made my way back. When I returned, 
I found her completely surrounded by these Chinese tourists who were taking her photo and marveling at this elderly American woman with bright white hair and a huge smile. Those things happened before she began to disappear. She wanted to know everything and everyone, and she attracted serendipity in her direction. For many of the students at her school, she was the first adult ever to tell them these kids with learning disabilities, behavior challenges, or simply, as she called them, the kids who fall through the cracks of the traditional education system. Mom would look them in the eye, talk to them like adults, and tell them that they could make their dreams come true. She listened to every single Broadway soundtrack that I played for her start to finish while I would describe each story or character or score. We went on road trips. We got caught in thunderstorms. We explored Buddhist temples and Unitarian churches all over the Seattle area. We sat together, writing in our journals, and talked about our dreams. My mom loved bright lights and bright colors, and she never met a string of little white lights that she didn't love. She spoke to strangers and learned their life stories. She couldn't hear very well, but when she focused on you, she could make you feel like the most important person in the room, in any room. She was such an outgoing, friendly, happy person, and and I just loved that about her. And she always wore the bright colors, you know? And I was like, I need to be more like her. (laughs) She was definitely an extrovert. She loved to talk to people. And I'm the opposite. (laughs) My connection with her was this uh, one one topic, and that was, you know, education. She was one of the few people that could, she just listened. She was really interested. She did research on it. She, you know, she really empathized with me and she, you know, and nobody else in my life cared. They didn't give a rat's ass about it. And so it was like, it was like, I was always excited when we were going to go to a party that she was going to be there because she'd always ask me questions about it. And it made me feel like, oh God, well, she remembered and she cares. So your mom left a legacy. She, she worked her passion was her passion and she loved what she was doing loved it so now i can see When I look backward, I understand something I had missed before. During the long years of her decline, I resented my mother for not always being available to me and disappearing on me so early, right as I was becoming a mom myself. But now what I can see is simply that I missed her back then and now. And it was so painful that it felt like rage, which is sometimes an easier emotion to carry. Like Steinem had said, I missed her no more in death than I had in life because she was battling so many other things for most of the time we had together. And I loved her so much. I wished I could have had more of her. 
but she gave me what she had to give. And that I know now. Completely. In 2017, on the eve of the procedure that removed her colon cancer, she and I were both convinced she was about to die. It was very high risk given the state of her heart, but the alternative was letting her bleed out from the tumors taking over inside of her body. So surgery it was. She was tired, being poked and prodded and stitched back together. We had become good at saying goodbye by then, with so many health scares. Every new procedure felt like it could be the last. That night, I sat with her in her hospital room and asked her a few questions and wrote down her answers. Here are the few of the things that she said. I asked, how are you feeling about your surgery tomorrow? And she said... I'm afraid I won't be able to come back. If my brain is gone, let me go. But if I can think, I want to be here. All I have is my thinking. My body isn't good to me, but I can think. I like my mind, and I like how it works. I want to keep thinking. Me, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself at our age, what would you say? Her, you never know where life takes you. All you've got is today. I would tell myself I couldn't have enjoyed raising you kids any more than I did. I loved every minute of being a mom to you guys. The more I loved you, the more I could let you be free and fly away. I loved the way I raised you, and I'm thankful for that. Me. When people look back at you, what do you want to be remembered for? What is your legacy? Her. I want them to remember that, first of all, I was a mother. That was the proudest thing I did, be a mom. The second thing is the third baby I had, my school. I am proud of that. It's tied up with you guys having your dreams, me having my dreams, and those kids having theirs. I want people to remember that legacy of what I created, but the fact that I created you first. And finally, this was my favorite part, I asked her, what is your hope for us? She said, I want you to always be proud of yourself, to love yourself, be your own best friend, spend time alone in solitude, continue to see yourself as independent women, separate from being a mom, separate from being a wife. Remember that you are this person, which is you independent in this life and be proud of yourself I think you guys already know this I hope that's a gift I gave you about that interview for a while and I rediscovered it after she died it was waiting for me in my documents like a gift that was exactly what I needed I needed to hear her voice again especially after everything and I keep it with me in my heart I revisit it from time to time or recite some of her words to myself when I most need to hear them It reminds me of my daughters who will find these small rocks wherever they go and carry them around in their pocket for weeks like they are these 
invaluable gemstones. I see them grab these rocks in their hands and turn them over and over, connecting with the treasure that they carry. And that's what this has become for me. One last treasure from my mother, the stone that I carry in my pocket wherever I go. I never have to guess what she would say to me if she was still here today, because she already told me. After she died, we also found some of mom's journals. I read through every single one. She wrote often in the later years about her childhood. Here's one thing she said. I dreamt last night that I was in high school again, the summer before my freshman year in college. I was mowing the lawn on my bare feet. It was soft as silk to walk on. It makes me sad to think of her having to turn to her dreams to be able to remember what it felt like to walk. And randomly in the middle of another entry about something else altogether, I saw these words pop out at me. She never really wrote about me in these journals, these later ones. But there was this. It says only, Catelyn, just dream. That's all. And that's what she gave to me, the ability to dream. And then this very final reminder in her journal. Last spring on April 7th, the first anniversary of mom's death, I caught my daughter Amelia standing on her front porch in her pajamas. She was supposed to be getting ready for school, but she saw something and she went outside to see it more closely. I followed her and I realized she was talking. When I listened through the window, I heard her say to the ground that was still mostly covered in snow, well, hello, little flower, aren't you pretty? It was the first flower of spring, which here in Vermont always collides with our long winters. That afternoon, both girls and I went and scouted for other flowers in the yard, and we found seven in all. We agreed this was surely my mom popping up to say hello. And that henceforth, she will always be here in those first flowers of spring. Because of course that would be her. Strong, fierce, optimistic and colorful. Popping out of the cold, inhospitable ground to encourage us. To say, great things are coming. Thank you, Mom. You are absolutely right. everything that came from this journey and reflecting on what I've learned throughout and also after I completed it on chapter six what's left behind